You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is that time when we get to search the scriptures with the Lutheran Witness Managing Editor, the Reverend Roy Askins, Pastor Askins. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. Thank you, Andy and Sarah. It's great to be here. I always enjoy being with you guys. We always enjoy studying God's Word with you and looking forward to digging into the August issue. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. So we're continuing this theme in the Creed, right, Pastor? That's correct. We are wrapping up today the second article of the Creed, moving from our confession of uh, who Jesus is and what he has done and into next month a confession of the Holy Spirit mm. and, uh, and and his work among us. Very good. So uh, the title this month, From Thence He Will Come. Thence. I love that word. Thence. Yes. I actually didn't. I mean, so here's a here's a, a, a grammatical thing for you, you grammar nerds. Thence actually means from that place. So if you look at the second paragraph, it literally says from, from that place, from this position of power. There's actually from in there three times effectively. Um, huh. Yeah. Just a, a fantastic word. Thence. From that place. Uh, our Lord uh, uh, governs and guides all of all of creation for the good of his church. I love it. Shall we dig in? Let's dig in. All right. <laughs> Question number one. He will come. Read Matthew 24, 36 to 44. How will Christ return on the last day? Who alone knows the day of our Lord's return? And in true fashion to these studies, there's an extra Bible passage. <laughs> See also Matthew 25, 13. I went a little crazy this month. I apologize. I think you always do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it was extra words. As it's I was the word of God. Those, yeah, I know. I know. It's that's my extra. thought. Exactly. That's my thought. There's always space for extra Bible verses. So uh, let's, let's dig into uh, Matthew chapter 24 here. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be on the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And then he reiterates that with uh, the saying of the master and the thief. Um, so this passage uh, has been the occasion for much speculation over the course and history of the church. <laughs> it makes for great uh, 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 CGI. Books and movies. Books and movies. <laughs> and I say great CGI when you can picture you know two people sitting at the wheel, one grinding and one just disappearing, or like cars suddenly becoming driverless, right? Right. Um, uh, and uh, and so this has been an occasion for much much false teaching. Um, it's actually not, this passage is not talking about the rapture at all. Uh, and in fact, that's not something we as Lutherans confess, um, but rather talking about the nature of Christ's return. The, the point of the passage is really that second question, who alone knows the hour? The Father alone knows the hour when our Lord will return. And so uh, here in this passage, our Lord is encouraging the disciples and us to stay awake, uh, to be watchful, uh, to always be faithful and, and, uh, and keeping an eye out for our Lord's return. So the question becomes then, how do we do this? How do we remain faithful? How do we uh, uh, stay ready for Christ's return? And we do that by being where our Lord is with his gifts, delivering his gifts in word and sacrament, right? Being present on Sunday morning. Uh, I've recently heard that it's considered now uh, regular church attendance to go like twice a month. 
Like you, people consider themselves regular church attendees. If they go twice a month, I can't imagine that, right? I need the gifts of our Lord's forgiveness to keep me ready for our Lord's return every single Sunday, right? Or uh, more. Or, or more, or more. Right? <laughs> right? I mean, I, I here at the IC, we get to go uh, uh, hear our preaching from the from from the pastor every every day. So, uh, indeed, uh, this idea of being ready for our Lord's return is being there regularly, where He gives us His gifts and the preaching of this word and his sacraments. Uh, also, a regular word in prayer uh, at home, uh, listening to KFUO more, hearing more of the proclamation <laughs> of the word here in KFUO, uh, all sorts of great things like that. Uh, that's how we stay alert and aware for, uh, for our Lord's return. Be where he's promised to be. Hey. Yeah. I like that's a good promised. idea. Yeah. Right, anything else on question number one? Or I think Do you want to move on to two? I, can we do two this quickly? I mean, I feel like I moved through that too fast. <laughs> We can go to. Talk. <laughs> There's plenty to talk about. <laughs> to judge is the, what we're, the quote we're referencing here. To judge. So take a look. Uh, read Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. When Christ returns, He will judge the world. How will He judge the world? And we can also look at Second Corinthians 5:10 as well. Indeed. So uh, this is the the. Uh, teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, the final judgment here in Matthew chapter 25, where he gives us all these wonderful um, in time passages. Uh, so let's read this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you with a, a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you in sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of one of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Um, so Christ, here in this uh, in this passage, uh, we have Christ returning suddenly with glory with all the angels, right? The Son of Man comes in his glory when he returns. All the angels are going to be with him. He's going to sit on his glorious throne. I tend to think here of the beautiful passage in Ezekiel, the first uh, one to two chapters of Ezekiel, where he gets this vision of the Lord, and the Lord is sitting on the sapphire throne, and he's sitting on this sapphire expanse, and you have these angels, the the seraphim with their their four faces, the man, the ox. The, bird, the, the eagle, the lion, and they're holding it up with their wheels covered in eyeballs and all the, the frightening images that we have from Ezekiel of, of, uh, of, the, of the angels, the seraphim. And here is how the Son of Man comes. He comes in glory. This is not a hidden uh, return. It's going to be obvious for all when our Lord returns. And he's going to uh, judge, um, judge the world. And how does he do this? Well, he does it, Jesus says, as a shepherd separates sheep 
and goats. The sheep on his left, the goats on his, sorry, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. I'm left-handed, so for me, my left is my right. This is terrible, but I always make that, make that mistake. Okay, anyways, he separates sheep and goats. Now, here's the thing. At perhaps a first blush, it might appear as though this is being done on the basis of our works. And in some fashion, it actually kind of is. But that's not how we are being saved. Uh, what, he's, what is being shown here is that sheep do what sheep do and goats do what goats do, right? The sheep are those who are righteous, who have been made righteous in Jesus Christ. And what do sheep do? They care for the sick, right? At least in this in this passage here, they're caring for the sick and the the stranger. And it's it's like also Jesus also talks about this as the tree, right? Good trees and bad trees, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, good trees bear good fruit, bad trees bear bad fruit, right? So what is in your nature as a good tree to bear good fruit? Uh, so he is separating them based on those who are righteous and unrighteous. It is not to say that because this person did good things, they became a sheep. That is not the case. They are declared righteous on account of Christ's work on the cross. And because of that righteousness, they do good things. They do righteous things. That is, they care for the sick, uh, for those in prison, uh, for those who are naked and clothe them and so forth and so on. So these deeds are a reflection of who they are. I'll never forget my vicarage supervisor, Pastor Weeding, would always ask the question this way, do you sin because you're a sinner or are you a sinner because you sin? Right? Uh, and the nature, his point is the nature is first. Because you're a sinner, you sin, right? And so also as the children of God, we aren't holy because we do good things. We are holy and therefore we do good things uh, that give, give all glory to God. So this is how he judges the world, uh, separating the sheep and the goats, or will judge the world. Um, uh, he will separate sheep and goats, and the sheep on his, his right will come with him into eternal dwellings, to eternal life. Did you want to dig in and all to 2 Corinthians 5.10? Did I want to do that? Of course I wanted to do that. <laughs> Uh, it's actually further explanation of, of this point. Second uh, Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, right? Once again, he is not doing good, therefore becoming righteous. You as a child of God are not doing good and becoming righteous, but because you have been made righteous in Jesus Christ, you do good things. So, All right, question hmm. three. Question three. Read John five nineteen through twenty nine. By what authority does Jesus judge? We, my thought here in this question was to kind of get at the idea of uh, Jesus judging and why he, how he judges, or not why, how, but why he's judging. We tend to have this idea, at least I did, uh, for the, for the longest time, of God the Father as the one who judges. But here in this passage in John, Jesus makes it absolutely clear that uh, he is the one who will judge. So let's read this passage, uh, John chapter 5, verses 19 through 29. So Jesus also said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father." Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. 
And I would encourage you to read the rest of that passage as well, uh, but we need to get on to the answers here. Uh, <laughs> the authority that Jesus judges by is the Father's authority. The Father actually gives this authority to Jesus uh, to judge the world. And it's amazing as you look at this passage how you see this relationship between the Father and the Son working. The Son, uh, you know, you, you can imagine here, and of course it's always dangerous to imagine how the Trinity works amongst itself. Uh, <laughs> however, we're going <laughs> to imagine this here. Uh, you can imagine a father working on a piece of furniture, doing some woodworking, and his son watching what he's doing, and then doing likewise, right? Uh, here the Son is watching what the Father does, and he only does what the Father does. This shows the complete total unity of the Father and the Son, the complete and total unity within uh, the triune nature of God. Uh, it's not as though God the Father is angry at humans and and uh, Jesus then comes and makes it all okay, right? Uh, Jesus himself is also angry at sin, right? Uh, but the Father is also pleased on account of Jesus, as Jesus himself is pleased with those for whom he died. So this complete unity between the Father and the Son uh, in terms of how they relate and, and face uh, humankind. And and then in this this complete and total unity, how they they judge and act on behalf of mankind. So uh, Jesus Christ Himself will be this one uh, that will judges that will judge the world, uh, as we also saw in the Matthew twenty five passage, uh, because the Father has given all authority to Him. So it's true authority given to Him, not just something He came up with on His own. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. It also is an interesting observation that the one who will judge you is also the one who died to save you, right? Just ponder that for a moment, right? He loves you so much. He came, became man to suffer and die for you. And he is the one who will judge you, right? How will he surely not also uh, bring us into life uh, because he was so willing to, to even sacrifice his own life for them, for us? We are searching the scriptures in the August issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins, managing editor of The Lutheran Witness. We have more to study in God's Word today. We'll do that in just a moment right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are searching the scriptures in the August issue of The Lutheran Witness with the managing editor, the Reverend Roy Askins. Uh, digging into scripture today, are you, Pastor Askins, anything else on question number three from John chapter five and Jesus' authority before we go on to question four? We can just move on to question four. All right. The living and the dead. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verses 13 through 18. Who are those who have fallen asleep? What does God promise Christians about those who have died in the faith and those who await the final judgment? And what does it mean for a Christian to meet the Lord in the air? 
For those of you following along, uh, have fun filling out uh, these three simple lines, this this whole question on these three simple lines in this Searching the Scriptures. Uh, let's read First Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, uh, once again, the, the intention behind this question is also to get behind uh, and correct a number of, of false teachings and misinterpretations around this text. Because like the, the one taken and one left passage from, from Matthew, this is often misinterpreted. Um, what is our Lord saying here? First off, verse 18, I think, is kind of the key for the passage. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians here about the end times is for encouragement. It is to build us up and to, to, to give us confidence in our Lord's return and our eternal life with him. So we should always read this, not in the, in the context of fear of, oh, the end times, it's all going to be frightening and everything's going to fall apart, but rather in the confidence of who we are in Jesus Christ, the beloved children of God who will be brought together with him. So with that in mind, uh, what does this mean? Well, he starts off, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Those who are asleep are those who have died in the faith uh, and and before those of, those of us who are still alive, right? Those who have already died. And he wants us to, he says, grieve as uh, so that we do not grieve as others do who have no hope, right? Our hope is that they, ha- they have died, they have fallen asleep, and they will be raised again on the last day with us and our Lord. And that's a source of hope for us uh, and, and delight and joy for us as well. Um, this language of sleep was the common language used by the early church and even uh, St. Paul himself, as we see in 1 Corinthians 15, was the common language for discussing uh, the body as it had died. It is not in any way uh, uh, talking about what is often called soul sleep. Um, these are just the way of talking about the body prior to uh, the, the resurrection, uh, the end times. In fact, we see this also in, I know uh, Sarah likes hymns here, one of my favorite <laughs> hymns, Lord, Thee I Love With All My Heart, stanza three, this beautiful passage where it talks about, to Abraham's bosom bear me home that I may die unfearing, and in its narrow chamber keep my body body safe and peaceful sleep until thy reappearing, and then from death awaken me that these mine eyes with joy may see, O Son of God, thy glorious face. Right? He's not advocating soul sleep in any way. It's simply the way of talking about the deceased body as it's laying in the casket in the ground awaiting the resurrection. And this is, uh, in terms of the next question in this list of questions for question four, uh, the answer to the next question, what does God promise Christians about those who have died in the faith? That we will be raised together with them uh, um, on the last day and that we will meet with Jesus uh, on the last day. The key point here, and we're going to circle back to this in chapter or in question six. This is almost like a chapter. I'm talking about fast enough for a chapter, right? Uh, we're going to circle back for question six. The, the point is, though, not that we will be with the, the deceased saints, but rather that we will be with 
Jesus Christ himself. I think sometimes we miss this in our resurrection hope. Our resurrection hope is not that I'm going to be with grandpa, though I'm going to be delighted to be with grandpa. He's an amazing guy. My resurrection hope, though, is that I will be with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died that I might have life eternally with him. Uh, he is the central figure of our life together uh, with uh, in eternal life uh, in heaven, uh, not, not all these wonderful people that I know and are delighted to uh, spend time with here on earth. Uh, and then finally, what does it mean that we will meet the Lord in the air? We have these last little, uh, in verse 17, these two phrases uh, that we will meet, caught up together with him in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. The air, uh, if you look at Ephesians 2, verse 2, he talks about, St. Paul talks about the devil as the prince of the air. It was the place of demons. Um, by saying this, he's, he's demonstrating that this is the final return of our Lord. All things is under are under his control, and we will be joining with him in this kingdom in the clouds, right? And for clouds, I mean, think of transfiguration, the cloud on transfiguration, the cloud of glory in the Old Testament. There's a whole bunch of stuff we could do there, but I don't have time right now. Um, So dig into that a bit more uh, when you can. Shall we go to question five? I think we shall. All right. Read Matthew. There's a lot of these. 24, (laughs) 50 to 51, 25, 12 to 13, and verse 30, 41 and 46, and Luke 16, 24. What is damnation? How long do these passages portray this punishment? And then read Mark 3.29. How long will this punishment last? Okay. All of the Bible verses. All the Bible verses. Let's actually start with the end. How long will this punishment last? Uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 29. Um, but whoever blasphemes against the Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, right? Uh, this is not something that is temporary. It is eternal. Um, and then also, I think we have... I originally had uh, 41 on here, 25, 41, but I don't see that. Oh, yeah, there it is. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Then Jesus will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So this, the hell uh, will last forever. Uh, but what is the the picture of hell? I, I think a lot of times we end up with these caricatures of heaven or hell in our heads. Um, you know, you think of little demons torturing the damned, um, you know, flames and this kind of a thing. Uh, incidentally, uh, I'm reading Dante with um, Dante's, uh, well, we read the Inferno, the, the, the Divine Comedy. And we've made it through the inferno. In Dante, the deepest circle of hell is actually frozen, right? It's mm-hmm. actually freezing cold. It's like absolute zero. That's how he pictures the center of hell, which is so different from most of our other conceptions. Um, but uh, so let's correct. What, what does the Bible actually say? How does the Bible actually speak of of hell? Well, uh, it's common, and Jesus often uses the phrase, or a couple, a handful of times uses the phrase, uh, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Um, this idea, this this weeping, of, of course, pain and suffering, uh, but then gnashing of teeth is not a parallel necessarily to, to pain and suffering, but actually, uh, if you look at it in its context, kind of an anger and rage, presumably uh, directed against God, right? You, you imagine somebody that's done something really horrible to you, what do you do? You're going to gnash your teeth at them, right? Uh, and uh, and so th- there is this, in hell, it is a place of pain and suffering, but also a place of anger against God and rage against God. So that's one sense, uh, one way that Jesus talks about hell. If we move to Matthew chapter 25, verses 12 through 13, this is perhaps to me even a little more frightening. Uh, this is the parable of the... Um, I mean, all of it's frightening, right? <laughs> Let's just be honest. But this one really gets gets me. This is the parable of the ten virgins. Five are ready, five are not. 
and the, the, the other five that aren't ready, they go out and get their oil and they come back after the bridegroom has returned and the door is shut. And this is what the bridegroom says to them, says to them. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you, right? Hell is described as a place of being unknown by God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the old, in the Old Testament, what did the people in the Old Testament wanted? They wanted God to shine his face upon them. They wanted his face looking toward them, right? You think of the ironic benediction uh, that we have at the end of, our, of the divine service. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. When the Lord turns his face from you, when he hides his face from you, when he no longer knows you, that is the place uh, of, of fear and terror, of, of, of horror, the place of hell. So another kind of description. And then, of course, there is, you know, as I, I mentioned, we, we talk sometimes about um, the caricatures of hell. Um, there is, of course, the description of hell uh, as the place of fire, right? The, the fire prepared for the devil and his angels, uh, where those who have rejected our Lord and Savior will, will go to suffer with him. So uh, those are certainly biblical images. They're not uh, inaccurate, uh, but um, yeah. About three minutes left for question number six. Read All Matthew right. chapter 8, um, verse, verse 11, and chapter 25, verse 10, Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9, 2 Timothy 4, verse 18, and 1 Peter 1, 8. What images does Scripture use to describe our eternal existence with God? Read Revelation 21, 22 to 27. What is the central figure of paradise? We're, we're going to actually just jump to Revelation 21. Very good. Uh, and we're going to talk about the central figure of paradise. And if I have time, we'll go look at some of these other other images. Uh, Revelation 21, chapters, uh, verses 22 to 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring it into the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what is the central figure of our uh, eternal life with God? Uh, This is once again what I was mentioning a little bit earlier, that the central figure is the Lord God Almighty who has worked throughout the history of the world to save and redeem his people, that is to save and redeem you. And he has done this through his son, the Lamb. And this God and this Lamb is the light and the lamp for all of this this eternal existence that we have. It is the central figure uh, that, that to which all the people look, to which all the people gather and come, this Lamb, uh, this, this God who has saved and redeemed us. This this is our joy and our hope and our confidence. Of course, we, you know, sometimes we tend to, uh, I think because we like all of, um, how do we, hmm, we are distracted sometimes, maybe is the way to say it, by all the things that we enjoy and we give them uh, perhaps a little bit uh, too much place in our life than it should have. So for instance, I love golfing and so I tend to picture heaven. Actually, I don't love golfing. Some people enjoy golfing and so they tend to picture heaven as this golf green, which, uh, you know. I don't know. What I do know is the lamb will be there and he will be the central figure, not my golf clubs, right? Uh, I, I love riding motorcycles, right? It would be great if heaven were full of motorcycles, but that's not the central figure of heaven. The central figure of heaven is the lamb who has died to suffer, uh, suffered and died for me that I might have life eternally with him. Uh, and so he is the central figure. Now, what are some of these other images uh, that the scripture uses to describe heaven? Of course, meal is a common uh, metaphor, or not metaphor, but picture image that we have to describe heaven. 
uh, in one place talks about dinner with the patriarchs. I'm kind of excited about eating with Abraham Isaac. Um, but <laughs> yes. this, uh, the, uh, this feast with our God, well-aged wine, uh, all of these kind of images. Also the wedding feast, so a related image, imagery, but uh, the idea of a wedding, Christ and his lamb or his bride uh, being married. This is also from Matthew chapter 25. Um, also in Revelation, Revelation 19, we have the image of uh, the bride, the perfect spotless bride of Christ, uh, a picture of heaven as those who have been completely perfected in him and this perfect white robe of righteousness that he grants. Searching the scriptures in the August issue of The Lutheran Witness, Pastor Askins, always a joy to study God's word with you. Thanks for uh, for leading us today and helping us dig into God's word. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. <laughs> The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.